0: This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jem Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program Issues in Perspective. As many of you know, I have announced my retirement as Grace University's president, effective the 30th of June, 2012. An important aspect of my retirement is the decision to end the radio edition of Issues in Perspective. The last radio broadcast of Issues will be the weekend of 28-29 January, 2012. However, I will continue writing the weekly edition of Issues in Perspective, which you can access at www.issuesinperspective.com, and the archive of past editions of Issues will remain at that site. Thank you for being a faithful listener and supporter of Issues in Perspective. To have had this radio ministry for nearly 20 years has been one of the joys of my life. I hope that you will continue to read Issues in Perspective at the website, www.issuesinperspective.com. Now, in the first perspective on our program today, I want to think with you about the pernicious nature of gambling. Once again, the pernicious issue of gambling is raising its ugly head in the state of Nebraska, the state in which I live, State Senator Paul Schumacher, has stated that he may sponsor a constitutional amendment to allow gambling. So Nebraska will not continue losing gambling revenue to neighboring states that permit casinos. It is important, therefore, for us to refresh our collective memories on the nature of gambling and its indisputable effects on culture and society. Over the last 20 years, the growth of the gambling industry has been staggering. Increasingly, more and more states are legalizing all forms of gambling. It is on several Indian reservations, and the respective states are now utterly dependent on revenue from some form of gambling. The gambling industry is a huge worldwide business. According to the magazine The Economist, in 2009, the total revenue from gambling worldwide was 300 and $35 billion. That percentage total breaks down as follows. Casinos, 31%. Sports betting, 5%. Bingo and so on, a little over 5%. Lottery products, almost 30%. Non-casino gaming machines, about 22%. And horse racing, just a little over 7%. The same magazine makes this insightful comment. Quote, The odds of winning the jackpot in America's richest lottery, Mega Millions, are 1 in 176 million. Euro Millions, uh, available to players in nine Western European countries, offer slightly better odds, 1 in 76 million. Roulette players, on average, will hit their number once in 36 or 37 attempts. Poker players' chances of being dealt a royal flush are as much the same as being struck by lightning, close that quote. Despite such overwhelming odds, Americans still gamble and are doing so at stunning rates. Furthermore, government is now involved in state-sponsored gambling as a matter of public policy. Can we make a case against gambling? How can we as Christians be good citizens and expose the pernicious nature of this growing pastime for Americans? Let me suggest several key action points. First of all, a few thoughts on gambling as a goal of public policy. It seems to me that immoral means have never led to moral ends. We are no longer skimming the profits from a criminal activity. We are putting the full force of government into the promotion of moral corruption. Quite frankly, gambling promotion has become a key to states balancing their respective budgets. But it is wrong for the state to exploit the weakness of its citizens just to balance its budget. It is most unfair... And it's a painful form of painless taxation. The money is not coming from a few big bookies, but from the pockets of millions of the citizens of our respective states. The states have become as hooked on gambling as a source of revenue as any compulsive gambler betting the milk money. Gambling feeds a get-rich-quick illusion that debilitates society and thereby causes individual ruin, despair, and even suicide. Hence, gambling corrupts the state and its citizens that both seek a piece of the action. Secondly, how does state-approved gambling impact people's lives? Five key thoughts here. One, legalized gambling sidetracks a great deal of money. The amounts that people spend on gambling equals or exceeds the total amount given to religious organizations and or the total amount spent on elementary and secondary education in this nation. Number two, legalized gambling handicaps a lot of people. The number of compulsive gamblers in the United States is about 5 to 7 percent of the population. Gambling behavior is usually associated with poverty, marital strife, job loss, homelessness, and hunger. Number three, legalized gambling victimizes vulnerable members of society, women, youth, and ethnic minorities. Of that, there's no question. Number four, state-sponsored gambling also seems to break down the resistance of people who would not otherwise gamble. Gambling addiction has risen precipitously since legalized gambling began several decades ago. And finally, state-sponsored gambling has promoted materialism and the fantasy of a life of luxury without labor. And that is not the real world. They are selling a lie, an illusion. And with the odds that I mentioned earlier... The ludicrous nature of gambling comes to the forefront. Finally, in this part of this first perspective, I believe it is difficult to fit gambling into a Christian worldview. There are several reasons. One, gambling encourages the sin of greed and covetousness. There's no doubt about that. Number two, gambling promotes the mismanagement of possessions entrusted to us by God. Of that, there is no doubt. Number three, gambling undermines absolute dependence on God for His provision. God promised us throughout the scriptures that He will take care of us, that He will meet our needs. We are instructed in the Lord's Prayer to pray for our daily needs. We're told by Jesus in the next chapter of that Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, that he will take care of us just like God takes care of the birds. He will take care of us. Well, gambling undermines that dependence, and that is not spiritually healthy. Number four, gambling works at cross purposes with a commitment to productive work. The Bible declares quite clearly an ethic of work perhaps most persuasively in Colossians 3.22 into the fourth chapter of that wonderful epistle. It's hard to put that and mix it with gambling and the addictive behavior that that produces. That's why number five, we know this without question. Gambling is a potentially addictive behavior. And as I mentioned earlier, as many as 7% of the population are addicted in some form or another to gambling. Finally, gambling threatens the welfare of our neighbor. We have seen people in neighborhoods, in communities, that become addicted to gambling, and it produces a dysfunctional family life and a self-destructive personal life. In short, it is difficult to view gambling, either private or state-sponsored, as one of the state senators of Nebraska wants to see, as a positive. It is one of the most telling signs, in my judgment, of a civilization in dysfunction and decline, one of the more discouraging aspects of our postmodern world. Hence, the evidence is in, in my judgment, gambling is another factor contributing to cultural decadence. But it is pursued by individuals and by the respective states with greater vigor and greater passion. Now, in conclusion, there is perhaps no greater sign of cultural declension than the growing passion and vigor for gambling in the United States of America. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about Tim Tebow and evangelicalism. John Meacham, associated with Time, Time Magazine and an important American writer on religious themes, has written, quote, Tim Tebow is perhaps the most significant evangelical Christian in the country. Depending on your point of view, Meacham continues, his rise is a thoroughly American story of honest conviction or of ostentatious piety, of faith in family or of aggressive sectarianism. Tebow's Witness is the latest chapter in a decades-old evangelical movement to transform America. Close that quote from John Meacham. In my view, Meacham is correct in his observations, and in this perspective, I want to make several observations additionally on the Tebow phenomenon in 21st century America. First of all, some background on Tim Tebow. Born in the Philippines, Tebow is the son of Baptist missionaries. His mother rejected recommendations to end her life-threatening pregnancy with an abortion. But doctors called the birth of Tim Tebow a miracle because his mother refused to have an abortion and delivered him And he is a miracle, doctors affirm. Tebow was homeschooled in Florida and played high school football and then played football at the University of Florida, where he placed biblical citations, John 3.16 or Philippians 4.13, on black bands right beneath his eyes. He has made much of his commitment to purity before marriage and affirms his virginity. In a 30-second commercial paid for by Focus on the Family during the 2010 Super Bowl, Tim Tebow and his mother told the story of his birth and her choice not to have an abortion. Today, he is the quarterback for the Denver Broncos and is best known for his habit of dropping to one knee and lowering his head in prayer. That action has now turned into a new verb in American English, T-bowing. In fact, in a recent article I read on that phenomenon, there were photographs of people T-bowing on Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, in Afghanistan, in Mexico, at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, at the Parthenon in Athens, in the Sudan, in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and in New Zealand. Secondly, on this part of our program on Tim Tebow, what has been the impact of Tebow on American culture? Well, several thoughts here. Meacham argues that Tebow represents a new phase of evangelicalism, a phase that he calls the platform. Tebow's remarkable passing game and last-minute touchdown passes have catapulted him to broader fame in the world of sports. Indeed, at the 2010 National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., Tebow offered the closing prayer to that ceremony. Quote, thank you for bringing together so many people that have a platform to influence people for you, close quote. Meacham contends that platform is a big word for Tim Tebow. It comes up again and again in his public remarks and in his memoir, Through My Eyes. The preaching of the gospel, the living of the gospel, is moving from pulpit to platform, from church to culture. The next Billy Graham, if there could be such a thing, may come not from the ranks of traditional preachers or ministers, but from sports or entertainment. Because of Tebow's platform and the number of people that see him, He is possibly a much more influential messenger of the gospel than any active evangelical cleric today. Number two, in terms of the impact he's having on American culture. When Tebow placed John 3.16 in black below his eyes during a University of Florida game, there were 92 million Google searches for that scripture passage. His Twitter feed, full of Bible verses and his signature symbol, GB squared, God bless plus go Broncos equals GB squared, spreads an evangelical messenger to some 800,000 followers. And his Facebook page does the same thing. It has 1.3 million subscribers. Finally, Tebow has also, not surprisingly, Become the object of scathing remarks and mockery. Saturday Night Live recently did one. Countless critics and people on national television have done the same thing. Tebow hatred among the secular media is growing, but that fact should not surprise us. Tim Tebow represents something, he represents an authenticity that the secular media is uncomfortable with. They are looking for something that causes him to have personal failure. They're looking at some aspect of his life which indicates inconsistency or a double standard. They may find it, but the point is Tim Tebow is representing something new in evangelicalism, the platform, moving perhaps from the pulpit, to some broader way of exposing and presenting the gospel. Thirdly, Danny Werfel has served as a powerful role model for Tim Tebow. Michael Flattery and Nathan Whitaker, in a recent article, reported that Tebow's parents made it a point to introduce their son, Tim Tebow, to Danny Werfel while he was still playing at Florida. Both families understood that football provided a platform that could be used to talk about their faith. Werfel was drafted by the New Orleans Saints in 1997 and played three years for that team. During that time, Werfel began volunteering with Desire Street Ministries, which tries to improve the lives of families by revitalizing neighborhoods, providing assistance to residents, tutoring children, and supporting parents in their schools. In 2003, after his career in football, Danny Warfel and his wife went into full-time ministry with Desire Street. Tebow now brings at his own expense disabled young men and their families to each game he plays and spends a significant amount of time with them before and after the game. He learned much about genuine expressions of his faith from Danny Warfel. Flattery and Whitaker write, that such mentoring by Christian men is one of the most inspiring and least understood stories in American sports. Super Bowl winning coach Tony Dungy has been lauded and criticized for his work with individuals like Michael Vick, the NFL quarterback jailed for running a dog fighting ring. Tebow was mentored by Danny Warfel and that changed his life. Finally, in this section dealing with Tim Tebow on issues in perspective today, I want to use this as a springboard about a few thoughts concerning prayer. Quite a few people have asked me about Tim Tebow's prayers. Is he praying for God's blessing on his playing? Is he praying that God would enable him and his team to win? Should we pray to win an athletic contest? Does God take sides in an athletic contest? Well, I do not know what Tebow is actually praying when he kneels. He says that he is engaging in prayers of thanksgiving, not that God would intervene in the game for his team. But the Tebow phenomenon does raise this issue of God answering our prayers. In answering this question about praying and God's answers, I'm drawn to Jesus' teaching on prayer in his Sermon on the Mount, the fullest account of which is in Matthew 5-7, through two major comments about prayer. First, in Matthew 6, 5-15, Jesus makes it quite clear that our praying is to be personal. We do not pray to be noticed by others, and our motive for praying is not to draw attention to ourselves. Our acts of praying are conversational and personal, not for the benefit of others. One writer has defined prayer as a dialogue between two people who love one another. I like that. Second, Jesus says that our prayers are to be purposeful. In chapter 6 of Matthew, meaningless, memorized words are not what God wants. We are to talk with Him about our needs, our goals, and even about all our hurts. His model prayer, what we sometimes call the Lord's Prayer, we see that. We address God as Father. We pray for our daily needs. We pray for a spirit of forgiveness for those who do wrong against us. And we pray for his kingdom, his values, his ethic, his rule to come to earth. Finally, we pray with a proper perspective in verse 8 of chapter 6. Indeed, God, Jesus, declares that your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This provides a key clue to why we pray. We do not pray to give give God information. He's omniscient. He already has the information. He doesn't need it. He craves the relationship that prayer manifests. Our practice of praying is personal, purposeful and with a proper perspective. It's one of the key dynamics of our relationship with the living God. Number two, in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Jesus enlightens us on how God answers prayer. In verses 7 and 8, he declares with certainty that God hears and answers prayer. Whenever we talk with him, we have the certainty that he hears us and that he will answer then what kind of answer can we expect? God will never answer with an inappropriate answer, verse 9, or a dangerous answer, verse 10. His answer will always be a good one, best suited to our needs and to his purpose for our lives. I do not know, nor do I presume to know, all that God is doing in Tim Tebow's life. Every indication points to his genuineness and his authenticity. As John Meacham observed, he is using his platform as a football player to represent Jesus Christ. He is also an effective role model for countless young men. He could be used by God to declare with profound simplicity the essence of the gospel, and I believe he is. My prayer is that Tim Thibault will remain faithful and committed to, as he often says, his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You and I need to pray for Tim Thibault that God will keep his protective heads around him, keep him from falling, and may he remain that authentic representation of the simplicity of the transformation the gospel brings. He could be a new platform for Evangelical Christianity. Issues in Perspective is a listener supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to IssuesInPerspective.com and click on the Listen to button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.